Well, earlier this year, congregants at Grace Missionary Baptist Church in Norwood, Ohio, lost their church. That's because their pastor, Jeff Pendergrass, sold the church building without any of the congregants knowing about it. The church was listed on an obscure website, and there was never a sign out in front listing it for sale. Angry congregants who had been at the church for much of their life filed a lawsuit halting the sale of the building, claiming Pendergrass violated the church constitution in the sale. The pastor, however, he didn't take the money for himself. The money is all still sitting there in the church's bank account. He was planning, in fact, on using the money to lease another church building for the church to meet at, as the church didn't have the money to stay in its current building. That's because the church had shrunk down to seven people, including the pastor. The pastor also claims that the people filing the lawsuit have not even been at the church for six months, and they're just bitter. Interesting story, to be sure. Who knows who's right? I don't know. But in one way or another, the days of this church are numbered. They lack the people and the resources to continue And so they are shutting their doors. But this is just one example of the thousands of churches that shut down every year in America. According to the U.S. Census Bureau records and church denominational reports, each year some 4,000 churches close compared to just over 1,000 new church starts. Even though the total U.S. population has been steadily rising over the years, The number of Christians in America and the number of churches has not. So what's going on? Why why is this happening? Why are churches closing their doors? Why are they folding? Well, some would say it's money. If a church can't afford its building payments, if it can't keep the lights on, then it just can't exist. Like any good business, if expenses outpace income, then the operation must fold. But this, I would argue, money is neither the main reason nor even a good reason for churches to close. Since when was money a prerequisite for the existence of the church? The early church in Jerusalem, they were dirt poor, and they certainly didn't have a building to meet in, but they met nonetheless. Money should never stop true believers from fellowshipping together as the church. Even if you have to meet in a park, Nothing is going to stop true believers from from coming together in obedience to Christ. The church is not a business. The church is not a building. The church is an assembly of believers called together to do as well. So money, money is not the real reason these churches are folding. What about members? You can't have a church if you don't have people, Right? I mean, can you really blame that church in Ohio for one close because it shrunk down to seven people? I mean, what if you showed up on a Sunday morning and there were just three other people or two other people or one other person? However, I would still argue that this is not the main reason or even a good reason for churches to close. There are no number requirements in the Bible for local church. In fact, Christ himself said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. So anytime just a couple of believers come together, they're part of the universal church 
they're an expression of the church. Smaller churches have unique challenges and more responsibilities per member, but it's only when these remaining few members lose their drive to exist as a church that the church closes its doors. It's only when people give up. And this really leads to that the real reason, the true reason, churches close. It's not money. It's not members. It's mission. It's objective or purpose. Explain it this way. Your response to a burning building and a fireman's response to a burning building are probably not the same. You run out of the building to save your life. The fireman runs into the building to save someone else's life. So what's the difference? What's the difference between these two? The difference is mission. It's the fireman's mission. It's his purpose to run into the building and save people. Yes, he's faced with danger, adversity, challenges. But because he's committed to his mission, he charges forth nonetheless. It's not going to stop him. And it's the same with churches. Yes, you may have challenges, not enough money, only a handful of people. Maybe you're in a hostile neighborhood. You've got constraining legal codes, slander, persecution. But if you are committed to the church's mission, you're going to be able to charge forth nonetheless. It's only when a church loses sight of its mission or gives up on its mission that they close their doors. It's only when churches lose their purpose that they lose their will to exist. This all begs, though, a very important question. Okay, what what is the church's mission? What is the church's purpose or objective? You may have trouble answering this question because if you look out, you see a lot of different churches doing different things, pursuing different goals. It can be confusing. So at the very least, we should ask, well, what should be the church's mission? What should be Berean Bible Church's mission? Can you answer that question? I want to help you with that today. It's not going to be your typical three-point outline sermon this morning. Rather, I want to use our time to talk about a crucial subject, which is the church's mission. It's been on my mind recently, and a couple of Wednesday nights ago, we had a really good discussion on it. So I wanted to capture that and, and translate it into a sermon. Specifically, though, here, here's what I want to argue. That a major part of the church's mission is church growth. A major part of the church's mission is church growth. We here at Berean Bible Church, we should be all about church growth. And wait a second, though. you got to hear me out. Because I know some of you may, not, may be confused. You might not know exactly what I'm talking about. You see, these two simple words, church growth, they can conjure up so many different images in your mind. In fact, in some Christian circles, the the term church growth, it's almost like a swear word. So before I explain to you what I mean, I want to spend some time clearing things up. I, I want to make a serious claim this morning, truly, that the church should be heavily focused on church growth. But first, I have to explain to you what this does not mean. And we need to first talk about unbiblical church growth. You see, in the past 50 years, America has witnessed the church growth movement and the seeker-sensitive movement. 
However, both of these movements are completely misguided and, and bankrupt in their motive and their method. Unfortunately, though, if you just mention the words church growth, this is what people think of. The biblical concept of church growth has been hijacked by these unbiblical movements and creates a problem. So to start, before I'm even able to make a case for you for biblical church growth, we have to first spend some time exposing you to church growth gone awry. So that's what we're going to do to start. The church growth movement, as we know it today, began in the 1960s and seemingly sprung out of Fuller Theological Seminary down in Pasadena, California, led by Donald McGavran, publishing and teaching church growth from the seminary. McGavran gave an intellectual and institutional credibility to the movement. And then thousands of pastors were trained from the seminary and sent out with these church growth practices. And near the same time, Robert Schuller started his ministry, which became the famous Crystal Cathedral in Southern California, which is now infamous. They're selling it off. Schuller subscribed to church growth ideas and in 1970 founded the, church, the Robert Schuller Institute for Successful Church Leadership. And he trained many more church leaders, including Bill Hybels and Rick Warren. These two men then advanced the church growth movement, taking their churches to the tens of thousands level. Bill Hybels leads Willow Creek Community Church in Illinois, currently the third largest church in America with some 24,000 weekly attenders. And Rick Warren leads Saddleback Church in Southern California with some 20,000 weekly attenders. And the basic tenet all these church growth leaders bought into is the fact that if the church is not growing large, something must be wrong. Small churches, steady churches, they must be unhealthy. Big, large, growing churches necessarily must be healthy. And what they did is they made numbers the primary barometer for the church's health. It's all about numbers. And soon what this created was a huge amount of pressure on pastors all throughout the country. That if their church wasn't growing enough, they had to do something about it. They needed to get in on this church growth trend and fast. Pastors of small churches who had for decades been faithful to teach the word, preach the gospel, they got frustrated with their small numbers. They felt like they were insignificant, irrelevant, unnoticed. They they were just a drop in the bucket. They weren't really making an impact in their community, so they had to be doing something wrong. Out of desperation and frustration, they tried out some of these church growth tactics. They thought, if they could just get people in the door, it would all work out. If we could just get people here, get them in the door, attract them, then we can start working with them. Then we can do something. Then then it will work out. These church growth tactics vary, but they all have one thing in common. Gospel preaching is not at the center. Gospel preaching is not at the center. That's been tried. They tried that for thousands of years, and it failed. First couple of thousand years of the church. Preaching the Bible, talking to people about sin, judgment, hell. And that, that's what drove people away in the first place. That's what turned people off. That, it just didn't work. 
so they said. And that's not what that's not what's going to bring people into the church. We're not going to reach the lost if we talk like that. As you can probably already see, the church growth movement is very pragmatic. It's about results. Here's the phrase, the ends justify the means. That's what it's about. The ends justify the means. Methods, how they do stuff, methods are, they were evaluated not on biblical teaching, but on whether or not they produced results. Does it work? If a method, if a technique worked, it's got to be good. If it didn't work, it's got to be bad. The problem with this, and what's really scary is with this type of thinking, is that the gospel itself, I'm talking about the true gospel message, which includes first the warning of sin and hell and judgment, then the good news of Christ. That message itself, which did not produce the type of results these people were looking for, is therefore deemed bad and left out. One method that has worked, however, is finding out from unbelievers what they want in church. This gave way to what is known as the seeker-sensitive movement, which now it's really synonymous with the church growth movement. They're really one and the same now. You've probably heard of churches being labeled today as being seeker-sensitive churches. Have you heard that? You've heard that label here and there? If you ever wondered, what does that mean? What does it mean for a church to be labeled as seeker-sensitive? Well, it means they are sensitive to the needs of the seeker as opposed to being insensitive to the needs of a seeker. So who's a seeker? Who or what is a seeker? A seeker is your average non-Christian who is what they call unchurched, which means they're an unbeliever, they have little church exposure, not that much, but they're not totally against Christianity. You know, maybe they grew up in the church and they just stopped going, or they have a relative or friend who's a Christian. They're not totally opposed to it, but they're not really religious or Christian or anything like that. And so to be seeker-sensitive means you custom-tailor church for these people. That's your target audience. You're orchestrating, you arrange, you do church so that it meets the needs of these people. Because that's who you're trying to attract. Along these lines, churches adopted popular marketing strategies to attract newcomers. They'd start off new church and neighborhood. They would do a demographic survey of the neighborhood, find out who we got here, who are the people, what what race do we have, what age group, what are their social bracket, how much money do they make. Start off with a demographic survey, find out who we're dealing with. Then... They would go out into the neighborhood and survey these people and ask them, what do you want in church? What would you like to see in a church? What would motivate you to start coming to church? What would it take? They did a survey. The results came in. Shortened the sermon. Lengthened the singing. Stop talking about sin and hell and judgment. And really add some entertainment, some drama, you know, liven it up a little bit. And churches listened. They made these changes. And guess what happened? It worked. It actually worked. People came. Lots of these unchurched, non-Christians, they started showing up. Church attendance skyrocketed. And countless other churches wanting these same results started doing the same thing. 
They started tapping into these church growth tactics. Tried to attract people by any means necessary. Like I said, the ends justify the means. Some churches added bowling alleys, gyms, Starbucks franchises, parks, I mean, you name it. And stuffy church relics from the past like pulpits and pews and in some cases even a copy of the Bible were just removed from the church. We don't want to be associated with the past. We're kind of moving on. Bible preaching took a major backseat. Some churches never to be seen again. Pastors, they stopped giving sermons. They started giving talks. Usually motivational, uplifting, in flavor. I have to admit, I have to make admission, we don't have TV right now. We don't have like a, a signal or anything. But back when we lived in LA, we had a little antenna. So we caught, you know, whatever's coming off air. And I used to love watching these seeker-sensitive pastors on TV preach. I used to love it. Guilty pleasure. Not because it was they were good or edifying. Because I just knew. I was sitting there. I knew one day this is going to make for great sermon illustration material. And I was right. I knew it. I've got some good illustrations. I'll just give you one. There's one guy, I forgot his name, and he was sort of preaching, just talking on TV. And he made some sort of point on the importance of concentration. Whatever, the importance of concentration. And to, to illustrate his point, he sat down, you know, left the stage, and they brought onto the stage a group of, <laughs> of female Chinese acrobats. And they, they went on stage and they did some sort of plate spinning and balancing routine. It lasted about five minutes and then he came back up and resumed his talk. And this was normal. This was just a, like a normal Sunday for them. This was a normal part of their worship service. And I, I always thought that was just too unbelievable to be true. But it's just one example among many of how churches, they started to conform their services to the taste buds of unbelievers. What do you want to see? What, what attracts you? What, what tastes good to you? Okay, here you go. We'll do it. Just come. We'll do it. The church growth movement and the related seeker-sensitive movement, they're both alive and well today, although they continue to evolve and change shape. And maybe you're thinking, okay, you know, yeah, there may be a few extreme examples, but what's really wrong with these movements? I mean, is this so bad? What's so bad about livening church up a little bit? I mean, sometimes it can get kind of boring. I mean, what's wrong with wanting more people to come to church? What's wrong with that? Do you have these questions? I hope you do have these questions. I hope you do. That, that's a good thing. That means you're thinking critically about the issue, and you need to think critically about the issue. And what is wrong with these church growth movements? I want to help you think through this. And keep it simplified, we don't have too much time, but I want to give you two fundamental problems with these modern church growth movements. Two fundamental problems behind the church growth movement. Number one, they have the wrong motive. And number two, they have the wrong method. They have the wrong motive and they have the wrong method. Let's start with this, the wrong motive. What is it? Church attendance. They have the wrong motive of church attendance. Their goal, it's to fill the house. They want to pack it out. They want to see as many people come to their church as possible. And the problem with this is simply that the church's goal is not attendance. 
I'll explain it like this. In the Bible, true believers are pictured often as sheep, while false believers or unbelievers are pictured as goats. Jesus himself used this analogy in Matthew 25, where he was teaching that when he returns, everyone is going to be gathered and then separated, just as a shepherd separates his sheep from his goats. When Christ comes, he's going to put his sheep on his right side and his goats, or the goats, on his left side. Then, those on his right, the sheep, the true believers, they will enter with him into eternal life. Those on his left, the goats, the unbelievers, will be cast away from him into an eternal death. That's how the story ends. That's how it's going to play out. That's just what's coming down the, down the line. So what does God want? Sheep or goats? Sheep. Okay, good. He wants sheep. What kind of a church does God want? One filled with sheep or one filled with goats? Sheep. Did you get the picture? What good does it do to invite a bunch of unbelievers to church and then make them feel good about themselves? They're still the goats. They're still lost. They're still dead in their sins. They're still in rebellion against God. Like Spurgeon said, I mean, what's the purpose of church? Is it to feed the sheep or amuse the goats? And yet, seeker-sensitive churches, they find themselves with thousands of people, but oftentimes it's just thousands of goats. What's the problem with this? Well, does attending church save you? No. Does attending church transform you from a goat to a sheep? No. That's why church attendance is not the goal. Church attendance does not save you. It doesn't do an unbeliever any good to come to church. It's pointless. God's not pleased. They're not earning heaven. They're not getting closer. It doesn't do them any good to come to church. What does save you? What does transform the goat into the sheep? There's only one thing. It's the gospel. Romans 1.16. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's where the power is located. It's in the gospel. It's not in gimmicks. It's not in entertainment. You, you think you would want the power if you're trying to reach people. Yeah, ironically, the only thing that actually can transform people before God is absent from seeker-sensitive churches. Because a long time ago, they had to sacrifice the full, unadulterated gospel message in order to attract unbelievers in the first place. Seeker-sensitive churches, they will always respond, well, we just want to get them in the doors, and then we'll minister to them. Then we'll try and convert them. Let's just get them here, then we'll, then we'll reach them. But it doesn't work that way, and it never happens. If you attract unbelievers to church by any means other than the gospel, the second you stop doing what you're doing, they're gone. It's a simple principle. It's called easy come, easy go. If you track them, for instance, through entertainment, the second the entertainment stops, 
Where are they going? They're gone. They're going to the next church. They're going to the next venue where they can get their entertainment. And so churches, these churches, they're bound. They know it. Their hands are tied to never bring up sin or hell or judgment or leave the gospel ever again. Because if they do, they're going to lose people. And sadly, the road to hell truly is paved with good intentions. The church growth movement wrongly thinks church attendance is a measure of success. It's just a business model. You know, if we have a multi-million dollar facility and tons of programs and 10,000 people, we have to be a success, right? But a church full of goats is no true church at all. And if you use that standard, then faithful men like Noah and Jeremiah, they would be deemed failures. I mean, these men preached for decades. And guess how many converts they saw? Zero. They saw no converts. They had no growth. And so were they failures? Well, in the eyes of the church growth movement, by definition, yes. But in the eyes of God, no. Why not? Because God simply calls us to be faithful, to preach the word, to minister the gospel, and to leave the numbers up to him. Jesus made a promise. It's just a promise. He said, I will build my church. I will build my church. We don't have to worry about numbers. Jesus will add to the universal church as many people as he wants, whenever he wants. He's going to take care of that. There's nothing we can do to affect these numbers. We can't control the numerical growth of the true sheep. In Acts 13, 48, Paul, he was preaching in Antioch. Then what happened after he preached? Acts 13, 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. How many believed? As many as God wanted to. Even Paul couldn't control the number of people who got saved or listened. The bottom line is the church needs to focus simply on being faithful to do what God calls it to do. And that is to preach the gospel. No gimmicks, no compromise. This is God's measure of success. And that's the right motivation for church. I said there's two fundamental problems. The first is the wrong motive behind the church growth movement. The second now is the wrong method. They have the wrong motive. Secondly, now they have the wrong method. And what is the wrong method? It is appealing to the felt needs of unbelievers in defining church. As we learned before, seeker-sensitive churches, they want to make church really appealing to the needs of unbelievers so that they will come. The problem with this is that people don't define church. God defines church. God defines what it is, what it's about, what takes place. I mentioned felt needs here. If you don't know what a felt need is, it's just what a person thinks he or she needs. It's what they think they need. Churches survey unbelievers. Find out what they need. What what do you need? What do you think you need? What do you want in a church? Music, entertainment, drama, comfort. And so they give it to them. But what do unbelievers really need? 
They need Jesus. They need the gospel. They need salvation. They need to hear that they're dead in their sins. They're separated from God. They're destined to hell. There's nothing they can do about it. Their sin creates an infinite chasm between them and God. They can't cross. They're lost. They're dead. That's the bad news. But then they need to hear the good news that God sent his son Christ to come to breach that chasm, to to make a way across, a way of escape through his death on the cross and resurrection. And that if they would believe in him and repent of their sins, they could be saved. They could be forgiven. They could be reconciled. That's what they need to hear. Don't forget the stakes. When you're playing with people's souls, it's high stakes. I'm not talking life or death. I'm talking eternal life and eternal death. And if you care about a person's eternal destiny and relationship with God, then you have to give them what they really need. Even if they don't like it, even if it makes you unpopular, even if it means they don't want to come to your church. The type of church that pleases God is the type of church that the world hates. And say, so ever brother who gets hooked on drugs, he's addicted, his life deteriorates. If he keeps up his habit, you know, you know, soon he'll be dead. You know it. He's just gone too far. So you go over his house, and he desperately begs you when you get there. He pleads with you, just give him some more drugs. He says he needs it. Seeing how desperate he is, you decide to give him some more drugs. Would that be wicked? Yes, that would be wicked. You would say, oh, but he needs it. No, he thinks he needs it. What he really needs is to be confronted about his addiction. What he really needs is to be kept away from all drugs. But he's not going to like that, you say. Yeah, of course he's not going to like that. But that's what he needs. And if you truly care about him, you have to give him what he needs. If this is a picture of so many seeker-sensitive churches, people are dying in their sins. They're lost. They're in need of a Savior. But instead of telling people the hard yet hopeful truth, they just give them the drugs that they think they need. Entertainment, comfort, pleasure, whatever. And that's wicked. And to make matters worse, by doing all this in the church, they've got these people thinking that they're actually right with God. Because, hey, now they go to church. They must be good, right? Hey, I go to church. I've got to be good, right? And so the goats sit amused and unaware, and it's pointless. This is not what God wants from the church, neither in motive or in method. Getting unbelievers to come to church and then making them feel good about themselves, it's kind of like polishing the bronze on the Titanic. They're still going down. It's pointless. The church growth movement and the secret sense of movement have really missed the boat. They may have, maybe, have started with good intentions, but their motives and methods are so misguided, they must be abandoned. And this is not 
the type of church growth that God is interested in. That being said, the concept of church growth in itself is not evil. The concept of church growth in and of itself, nothing wrong with it. We spent a lot of time shining a spotlight on church growth gone bad. That doesn't mean it can't be done right. That doesn't mean God doesn't want it to be done right. To the contrary, there is a biblical concept of church growth. It doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's there. So what is it? What does biblical church growth look like? Well, you can open your Bibles and turn to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. You could say everything up to this point has been introduction because now we're finally cracking open the word. But Matthew 28, last chapter in Matthew. You probably know it. It's after the resurrection. Jesus appears to the disciples in Galilee and he gives them some final instructions. And these final instructions are known as the Great Commission. This is the church's commission. This is the church's mission. And what's it all about? It's all about church growth. That's what it's about. Matthew 28. Let's start reading in verse 18. Jesus came up to them and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We don't have time, of course, for a huge exposition here, but just notice a few things. Verse 18, who has the authority? Christ has the authority, all of it. He therefore determines the mission of the church. He gets to say what the church should be and should not be doing. And what should the church be doing, which these 11 disciples were about to begin? Well, that's what verses 19 to 20 are for. Now, verse 19, get this. There's only one main command, one main verb in verses 19 or 20. Just one, one main command. It's not go. It's make disciples. That's it. It's the only one. It's called a finite verb. Make disciples. All the other verbs here are they are called participles, which means they just modify, they explain what it means, what it looks like to make disciples. So this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. He's saying having gone out into the world, make disciples. Baptize people as they repent and believe and bring them into the church and then teach them everything I said, and to obey it. It's a lifelong, never-ending process, and that is church growth. That is church growth. It's, it's evangelism, which is bringing people into the church through the gospel, and then it's discipleship, which is helping others become more like Christ. And for us now, as Christ's current disciples, we are to merely to be faithful to do this, to be faithful to what he has called all of his disciples to do. But that's it. That's church growth. 
It's nothing other than seeing people get saved and sanctified. That's it. Biblical church growth, it's nothing other than biblical evangelism and biblical discipleship. That's all it is. Again, this just exposes the problem with the modern church growth movement, and that is both biblical evangelism and biblical discipleship are absent. That's a big problem. Just a few years ago, Bill Hybels, mentioned him, the pastor of Willow Creek Church, made a confession. He made an admission that the church messed up. They made a huge mistake. All these years, they got it wrong in regards to their seeker-sensitive practices. They actually came forward and admitted they've been getting it wrong. You see, for all these years, they were attracting thousands of people. When they finally stopped and surveyed their own people, they found they had a lot of, pup- a lot of people, but very few disciples. They were attracting people, but they were not making disciples. And guess what? That's not church growth. That's not true church growth. Like I said, church growth, it's biblical evangelism and it's biblical discipleship. It's not just about numbers or or the breadth. It's not just about getting as many people as possible. True. We want to reach the world for Christ. But it's also about helping people grow deeper in their walk with God. Church growth, it's a biblical evangelism to the whole world. That covers the breadth. But then it's also biblical discipleship to the church. And that covers the depth. It just leaves a simple question. Do you think God likes biblical evangelism and biblical discipleship? Of course. No brainer. And so you can see now, with this proper definition, does God like church growth? Of course. Does God support biblical church growth? Of course. And with this proper definition, we can see God wants us to be all about true church growth. That's the church's mission. He wants us to be all about church growth. And like I said, this is a, is a huge part of the church's mission. And now, we've come full circle. I start off, if you remember, by asking you, do you know what the church's mission is? What the church's purpose is? Actually, is a lot of people, they don't know. They're, they're confused. It's clouded. And so far, we've seen that a huge part of the church's mission is church growth, biblical evangelism, biblical discipleship. And it's so important that you understand the mission of the church. Because like I said, when do churches die? It's when they lose their biblically mandated mission. So for the rest of our time, I want to switch a, a little bit of gears here and And focus now on the church's mission, biblically. I want to round it out. Yeah, we've seen a huge part of it is church growth. Let me give you a fuller picture. I want to round out this picture of the church's mission, the complete mission. And it's threefold. The church's mission is threefold. There are three primary purposes of the church. You can say three E's. They're all going to start with E. And so let's go over these now. I want to give them to you in reverse order. So number three is evangelize. Number three, evangelize. We just read this in Matthew 28. Jesus wants us 
his church to tell other people about him. He doesn't want us to hide in a corner. He wants us to go into the world and make his name known. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus again told his disciples before he left them to be his witnesses, both in Judea and Samaria, Jerusalem, even to the remotest parts of the earth. He wants us to reach the entire planet. And us as his witnesses should not be silent. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. So therefore, the first part of the church's mission is to spread the gospel. And that's, that's just what we call evangelism. Go tell people about Jesus. You. I'm talking to you. Go tell people. You don't have to go on a missions trip to Africa. Just tell the people around you. Tell your neighbors. Tell your relatives, your coworkers, your friends, the guy bagging your groceries, whoever. Just, just tell people. This is the first part of the church's mission. And you can see how related it is to church growth. That's really step one. The second part of the church's mission, number two, in reverse order here. The second E is edify. Edify. And you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't know what the word edify means, it means to build up, to uplift, to establish, to strengthen. And spiritually means you're helping someone out. You're, you're helping them become more like Christ. And this is the second part of the church's mission. And in Ephesians 4, Paul, he makes a point first that every single believer in the church is given a spiritual gift. Okay, so everyone has a spiritual gift. Let's pick up at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll pick up at verse 11. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Let me stop there. So basically, okay, here we go. Some people are given different gifts. Some are this, some are that. You may be thinking, though, wait a second, where do you fit in? You may be thinking, I don't see myself in this list, so where do I fit in? Well, let's stop and ask, why did God give some as pastors, for example, to the church? Why? God gave some as pastors, for example, to the church. So, verse 12. For what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. This is where you come in. God gifted some people to be leaders. But their job is not to do all the work. No. Their job is to equip the rest of the saints for what? For the work of of service. All the other saints, all of you, you've got a spiritual gift as well. And God gave some leaders to the church to help the other saints discover their gifts, develop their gifts, and use their gifts. To what end? What does the verse say? To the building up of the body of Christ. And guess what? You see that word building up? Verse 12? That's edify. That's what it means. Edify. This is edification. This is building one another up. Why did Christ give spiritual gifts to every believer in the first place? So that they would work and serve one another so that the body of Christ, the church, would be edified, would be built up. 
And this is the second part of the church's mission, to edify. And so are you involved in this? Because like I said, it's not just for pastors. I talked before about discipleship. That's basically what this is. You're, you're edifying others. You're discipling them. You're, you're serving them. You're helping them be like Christ. You're instructing them. You're keeping them accountable. You're helping them fight sin. All of that. Is this church growth? This is church. This is how the church grows deeper. When will this work end? How long do we have to do this? Like a year or what? Well, look at verse 13. He says, do this basically until we all, there's a key word there, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, how long should we be occupied with the second part of the church's mission? Until every single person in the church is made perfectly like Christ. That's just another way of saying until Christ returns. This mission doesn't end until history ends. It doesn't stop. This work should always be a part of the church's lifeblood. And notice how it ends. It's all about being and helping others be like Christ. The church as a whole does not grow unless every individual takes part in this work. And this is why I often ask you, you are you serving? Are you involved in one another's lives? Are you pursuing Christ together? Because you need to be doing this work. It's not just for me. My job is to help you do what God calls you to do. You need to take part in this second part of the church's mission. And as you can see, once again, it's really all about church growth. Through edification, through discipleship, the church grows deeper and stronger. And we can finish it off now with the 30, which is really number one on the list, exalt. Exalt. If you look back at the end of Ephesians 3, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul, he starts off this whole thing, the second half of the book, with the word therefore, which means he's building us all off of what came beforehand. And so what did come before? How did he end the first half of this letter? Look at verse 20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in what? In the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ to all generations forever. Amen. Amen indeed. To God be the glory. This is the greatest purpose of the church. God saved us for his glory. He brought us together in the church for his glory. When we do biblical evangelism, God gets glory. When we do biblical discipleship, God gets glory. And the ultimate mission of the church then is to see that God is exalted. We edify, we evangelize, we exalt God. Let me give you one more verse. And you'll see how this all comes together. 1 Peter chapter 4. And watch this verse. Watch how this kind of brings it all together for you. 1 Peter chapter 4.
verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. Verse 10 reads, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's verse 10. So there it is again. He's basically saying, okay, we've all received a gift, a spiritual gift, by God's grace, and everyone has it, and we're to use it to serve one another. Okay, makes sense. Verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So do do what you do, do it well, do it unto the Lord. Okay, why? What's the middle of verse 11? So that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There it is again. And why do we come to church? Why do we serve? Why do we do all things? So that God may be glorified. And this is the threefold mission of the church. Exalt God, edify believers, evangelize the lost. Exalt, edify, evangelize. Exalt, edify, evangelize. And isn't that just church growth 101? Is not God supremely glorified when his church grows by evangelizing the lost and then edifying the saints. This is the church's mission. So I just have to ask you now, is it yours? Is this your mission? Exalt, edify, evangelize. Do you share this mission? Are you excited about it? Are you involved in making it happen? Because if you're not, this church is over. This church will die. Like I said earlier, why do churches fold? It's not really money. It's not really number of members. It's about mission. When a church loses sight of its true mission, when it loses a passion for this mission, it's game over. Here we are. We're a small church. We're a small church in the land filled with a lot of churches. In the Santa Maria, Five Cities, San Luis Obispo areas, there are some 200 to 300 churches. So why don't we close our doors? Why don't we sell the building, donate the money, and then I'll just attend one of these other 300 churches. They're all within driving distance. Why don't we do that? I hope you would answer because we have a mission. And our mission is not over. We have a mission, and since so many other churches have abandoned this mission, we, we can't. We have to keep going. We can't abandon the mission. Of all the churches in the area, how many still actually believe everything the Bible says? A few. How many still hold to all the essential doctrines of the Christian faith? A few. How many still preach the true, unadulterated, non-watered-down gospel? A few. And as you go down the list, there really are, sadly, fewer and fewer and fewer good churches out there. And the church in America may be a mile wide, but it is an inch deep. And I'm not saying we alone are God's gift to the world or that we're the perfect church. No, far from it. But we have the truth. We uphold the word. We preach the gospel. We seek to do what God calls us to do, even though it's very unpopular. And so we have a mission. And we have to keep 
on the mission to exalt God, edify believers, evangelize the lost, and we're serious about it. That's why we exist. All this being said, is it okay to be a small church? Sure, nothing wrong with that. But is it okay to be a small church that is lazy, apathetic, and indifferent toward its mission? No, it's not. There is a difference between a small church that is faithful to its mission while trusting God for the growth and a small church that is not faithful to its mission. So the question is, which one are we? Which one are you? Because the church, the church is simply made up of its individual members. So which one are you? Are you on board and involved with this mission? What's it look like? Well, it doesn't look like just sitting, attending, consuming. It doesn't look like showing up on Sundays for a sermon, then just living the rest of your week without a thought of God or a thought of the church. It doesn't look like going years and years without ever sharing the gospel or telling someone about Jesus or inviting them to church. It doesn't look like never getting involved in the lives of others at church with the purpose of helping their Christian walk. It's not what it looks like. Instead, it looks like showing up and not just consuming, but providing. You provide service to others. You provide encouragement. You provide prayer. You provide love and so on. Church is not a Sunday morning two-hour activity, but it's a vital rallying point for your daily, your weekly Christian lives. You come to church not thinking about yourself, not thinking about what you can get out of it, not thinking about your needs, thinking about others, about how you can serve them, how you can help them, how you can encourage them. You know, when you see that new person who comes or that not-so-new person who just comes and goes. You make it your mission to, to get to know them, to get in their lives, to get invested, to help encourage them, to, to push them towards Christ-likeness, and vice versa. And if you think like this, you'll realize this, this won't just happen on Sunday mornings, but all throughout the week. This is an attitude. The same would then apply to your outreach. If you're thinking of yourself all week, of course you're never going to share the gospel with someone or tell them about Jesus. But if you're thinking outward, if you're thinking about others, as often as people bump into you, you're just going to tell them about Jesus, tell them about your church, tell them whatever. We could go on, but I just I just hope this morning you catch this vision, this mentality, this mission. Church is not here to meet your needs. Church is here to meet God's needs. Church is not about you. Church is about God. And others. God gave you your gift, not so that you could serve yourself, so that you could serve him, that you could serve others. This is the vision we must catch and apply. The church or the person who only thinks about himself never exalts God, never edifies the saints, never evangelizes the lost. And that's a recipe for a dead or dying church. For everything that's wrong, with the modern church growth movement, it's equally wrong to have the truth and not do anything about it. It's equally wrong to actually know the church's true mission and just sit there and not do anything. 
Just because we're a small church, we don't get a pass for being lazy and inactive when it comes to reaching the lost, building up believers. We have a mission. It does not end until Christ returns. So join together in doing your part in making this mission a reality. Be an active part of Bringing Bible Church and personally participate in exalting God, edifying believers, evangelizing the lost. Because then, and only then, will we see true, biblical, God-honoring church growth. Let's pray. Father God, we... Thank you for these words this morning and for your truth that you revealed to us in your word. Lord, when you left, you established the church, the body of believers called together in Christ, and you gave that church a mission. It's to evangelize the lost, to reach the world. It's to edify believers, to help one another become more like Christ. It's to exalt you, it's to give you the glory that you so rightly deserve. I pray, Lord, that this church would be all about this mission which really, it's all about church growth. Help us to see it, to desire it, and then to make it happen. Lord, we can't just wait for someone else to do it. We can't just sit and, and think, I'll just let that other person take care of it. And pray for each person here that they would be convicted and, and they would move to apply what they've learned and make it happen. To just be thinking, how can they get involved? How can they exalt you? How can they edify one another and get involved in one another's lives? How can they reach the lost for your name's sake? Light a fire under those who need it, that they would be more passionate about our purpose, our mission, the reason for why we exist. Otherwise, what's the point? There's so many churches out there, Lord, who just pointless. They don't have a point. We don't want to be that way. It doesn't matter if we're small or large. Help us to always keep this mission in mind. And we want to, in all things, Lord, keep in mind that this is for your exaltation. It's for your glory. You saved us for this purpose. Help us to, to live for it and honor you with it. In your name we pray. Amen.